you've got a Bible, normally I'd tell you to turn to a certain page number, but we're going to be flipping all over the place today as we step out of Luke to talk about the sanctity of life. Uh, so I'm not going to tell you a certain chapter and verse to turn, turn to, and also uh, I'm not going to be actually calling out page numbers as much today. So if you're not familiar with um, the Bible, I would encourage you to uh, put a finger in the table of contents so you can look um, at the verses I call out. We'll, we'll be going between Old Testament and New Testament and all over the place. Uh, because today, like I said, we're going to be, and like we watched the video, we're going to be talking about the sanctity of life. Okay, the sanctity of all human life. All right, all human life. And so to kind of get started... Uh, America, in a lot of ways today, has multiple layers of hypocrisy and just illogic, all right? almost uh, schizophrenia in a, in a bit of a way. It's kind of like the, um, the, the Batman, um, if you've seen, I can't remember which one it is, one of the uh, later ones, um, they've got Scarface or Two-Face or something. He's, he's a guy, and on one side of his face, it's, com, you know, it's completely mangled up and, and, and damaged. The other side is completely fine. And that's a way the U.S. is, in a lot of ways, when it comes to the sanctity of life. We have doublespeak. We have things that are illogical coming out of the same head, but two different ways of looking at, at things and just very, just layers of hypocrisy and just, just illogic, where we say things in two different ways. And so as we come to this issue this morning, talking about the sanctity of life, what we're going to be talking about in particular is the call to, to, to live out a consistent life ethic. Okay, a consistent life ethic built out of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to save sinners from the wrath of God that we deserve, every person on the planet, because of our sin. And so Jesus came and lived a perfect life in our place, died a sacrificial death in our place, rose again to give us a gift we could never earn for ourselves, a gift of forgiveness of sin. And so now, like as believers who've watched Jesus, who is our authority and our example, and never bifurcate those, they go together, and we saw him minister in word and deed, healing and teaching saving and serving. And so because He served, we serve others. Because He loved us, we love others. Because He cared for us, we care for others. Because He gave His life for us, we'll lay down our lives for others. Because He helped us, we'll help others. Because He rescued us, we'll seek to rescue others. Spiritually and physically. They go together. As followers of Christ, we've been called to this. As God's people, Psalm 82 says this, Give justice, this is what we're to do, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless, Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, Rescue the weak and the needy, Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so as we talk about this sanctity of life, we're talking about all human life. Every aspect, every person is created in the image of God. And it's really just a continuation of what we started talking about last week. We were talking about, you know, the civil rights movement and MLK and how he fought for that. Because biblically, the call to end the sin of racism 
and end the sin of abortion go hand in hand. Now, a lot of times they get divided. So just observation, we talked about this last week. Observation, a lot of times the people who are contending and combating racism are not the same people who are combating abortion. And then the people who are combating abortion are not the same people who are combating the sin of racism. But these things should go together. They both flow from the same biblical principle, which is the sanctity of all life. All life. And so we can't separate these, though we so often try to divide them. They are both God issues. He's passionate about both. They're both sanctity of life issues. And so again, what we need to recognize is a call to have and live out a consistent life ethic across all spheres, from the unborn to the orphan, to widows and the elderly, to persons of disability, to sex slaves and trafficked persons and victims, to the destitute and the impoverished and the starving, to those struggling to survive because of dirty water, to immigrants, to refugees, to people of different religions, different so-called sexual orientations, different ethnicities, and yes, even different political persuasions. All made. All made. Equally made. In the image of God. Sanctity of life encompasses all of this. And so, but, but, but if we ever start pigeonholing, all right, and, and whether we would say it out loud or we just live it in our heart, but, you know, I'll fight for the unborn, but forget refugees, forget immigrants, legal or illegal, okay? And I'm not talking about how we, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about how we as the church, the people of God, all right, love and show Christ, all right? If we're ever pigeonholing and it's just, I'll, I'll I, I, you know, Children um, who have a special need should not be aborted, but we're not going to work to help and to fight for and help them thrive. Right? We bifurcate, we pigeonhole and say, I'll do this, but I won't do this. Well, we can call ourselves anti-abortion, but we cannot call ourselves pro-life. Life encompasses all of it. Biblically the, biblically, the sanctity of life encompasses all of life. The Bible. I mean, this is one of the just if I'm talking with uh, someone who questions the Bible or just checking out Christianity. One of the things I always want to try to help them see is that the Bible lays out the greatest platform. For human rights that the world has ever had or seen. And so we, as the people of God, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you claim the name of Christ, we are called to engage graciously and persuasively with a biblically informed worldview and ethic, all right, of seeing life holistically across all issues of human equality, human rights, and the moral obligation therein. And so what we need to do is kind of inform ourselves. So let's lay that foundation Let's lay that framework. 
So if you want to take notes, and I didn't give you a sermon guide this week, and I have a great excuse for that, but I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) No, truthfully, my computer crashed. So we will not do anything. So a lot of this is handwritten this week. So I don't have a sermon guide. But number one, if you want to take notes, why is life sacred? Why is life sacred? And the answer, and we've already touched on it, 17 times probably, is because every single human has been made in the image of God. Theologically, in Latin, this is called the imago dei, the image of God, that God has put something into humanity, into humans that distinguishes us off from the rest of creation. Something that separates us from the rest of creation as magnificent and as spectacular as the rest of creation is mankind alone has been made in the image of God. Mankind alone has the Imago Dei. And so Genesis 1 that John attempted to quote earlier. (laughs) Truthfully, though, just to be real, it, it is one thing to be able to quote Scripture anywhere and everywhere, but then... Something happens when you get in front of people. It happens to me all the time. That's why you get paraphrases most of the time. But listen to Genesis 1 again. I'll start in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God speaks, things happen. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image. This is plural. There's a trinity. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, this alone was given to mankind. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And so humans are the crown jewel of all of God's creation. Because we alone have been created in the image of God. We have a spiritual, intellectual, and moral component that the rest of creation lacks. And so, growing up, and I've told you this before, I had tons of pets, right? We had horses, we had dogs, primarily stray dogs, lots of cats, primarily wild cats that lived in the barn, all these things. And they were great. I loved them all. But as awesome as they were, they weren't like my family. All right? I, I, I mean, I loved them. I've seen my dogs, cats, all, all these things run over. I had a dog get shot one time. Someone thought it was a wolf. Seriously, buddy? And I, I cried when they died. And a lot of you have got awesome pets that you love dearly. They are kind of like members of your family, but they're not the same as a human. None of them possess the image of God. Only people do. None of them were given dominion. None of them pray for you. Only humans can do those things. 
Only on humans has God imprinted his image, given us a soul that the rest of creation simply does not have. That's why I can kill a pig and eat its bacon and it's glorious. (laughs) But I can't kill you and eat you. We know that's wrong. Because there's an image of God that humanity has that animals don't. As great as they are. The Imago Dei has been imprinted on each and every person. And because it's been imprinted on each and every person, therefore each and every person has dignity and value no matter the stage of development in the womb, so-called disabilities, age, socioeconomic status, religion, sexual orientation, nationality, ethnicity, All of human life is sacred because every human images forth God has intrinsic to them the image of God built in them, the fingerprints, the handiwork of God. That's why human life is sacred. God made us in his image. And so let me be just real practical for just a minute about what that means for you and me. What that means for you and me. It means, first of all, individually, each one of us has value. Dignity. Worth. Purpose. Every single one of us. Our life counts and is sacred. And so for those of you who maybe struggle with with this or have bought into the lie of Satan that your life doesn't matter. Understand. That you've been made in the image of God. I think through this with him. Let's build this out just a little bit. When God chose to create something in his image. In the image of the eternal creator God of the universe. He chose to create you. So you think you don't have worth. You think that you're trash. You think your life is not as worthy as someone else's? You've been made in the image of God. Just that right there should stagger us. Put it the image in us, and we have value and we have worth. Every single one of us, no matter what tagline society made us, you know, put on us. And so building this out again, just I mean, look. We have a few windows here. All you can see are some trees and maybe some walls, but mountains, oceans, rivers, lakes, all this natural beauty that, that we can see around us. The solar system, right? Right now, you can see five planets, depending upon the time of night you're up. You see Jupiter, Venus, Mars, Saturn, and Mercury, depending upon what time of night you get up and look. You can see stars that have taken thousands of years for light to travel here at the speed of light, thousands of years to get here. You can see all of this stuff that God has made. And you think about the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim that surround His throne and and give forth praise 24-7. 
Think about all of those things and then think about only humans, only you were made in his image. And we are more like our creator than any of these other things. That we are the culmination of God's infinitely wise and skillful work of creation. And not just cosmically as as humanity, but also personally as individuals. And so you go Psalm 139. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God did that. Wiring you. Knitting you. No matter how you came into this world, you weren't an accident. You may have been to mom and dad, but you weren't to God. No matter how you came into this world, no matter the circumstances surrounding that. And so verse 14, so well, verse 13, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. What? The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so God has intricately woven you individually, all right, into you gifts and talents. Me and Gary, Gary, raise your hand, say hi, everybody. Gary has talents and abilities that God wired into him on purpose that he did not wire into me. And he did that for God's glory. He did that for, for the good of others through Gary. And he gave different ones to Doug. Doug, wave your hand. He gave different ones to Kendrick. Kendrick, wave your hand. (laughs) Each one of us have different gifts and abilities wired by God on purpose in our lives. He created us cosmically in his image, but individually. That's your worth. That's your value. Made by God. Your life counts and is sacred. And so that's what it means for us, okay? But number three, let's talk about what it means for others, all right? What does this mean for others? Number two is what does it mean for us? Number three, what does this mean for others? And what it means for others is this, the exact same thing. The exact same thing, that every life is of value is of worth, has dignity, counts, is sacred because it's made in the image of God. Again, from the unborn to the orphan to widows and the elderly to persons of disability to sex slaves and trafficked persons to the destitute and impoverished and starving to those struggling to survive because of dirty water. Immigrants, refugees, people of different religions, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic statuses, different sexual orientations, those that are on death row, all made in the image of God. 
and deserving, therefore, because of just that, of value and dignity and respect and sanctity. And to attack an unborn person or any image bearer is to attack to attack the very image of the creator God. That's why in Genesis 9, when God's saying, don't, don't kill, he says, why? Because they are made in my image. And so assaulting or enslaving another human being is nothing more or less than an attempt to eliminate the reminder that we are all created and accountable to the one true God. And so what do we do? What do we do? We love our neighbors as ourselves. And we talked about this last week, right? We, as, through our journey through Luke, we happened to be in Luke chapter 10 last week. And we talked about how the parable of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus tells that story, he, he changes the question that the lawyer is asking from what kind of person is my neighbor to what kind of person am I to be? He changes the question from who is my neighbor to whose neighbor am I? And how will we live like Jesus who neighbored us and like the example of the Samaritan that he gave and, and, and show compassion like Jesus has shown us, like the Samaritan showed the man in the ditch. To show compassion at great cost to ourselves. And so let's chat specifically. Let's, let's talk abortion for just a moment. Because that's why today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's always celebrated around this time. Because January 22nd, 1973, Roe v. Wade. So 44 years ago today, right? And since then, 57 million children have been aborted. To get the context of that. Nissan Stadium will hold around 70,000 people. So if we filled it to capacity every day for the next two years and three months and killed everybody in there, that's what's happened. It's an American Holocaust. And my prayer is that my grandchildren will look back at this like we now look back at pre-Civil War America with slavery and more recently segregation and think, how could you do that? And it will be gone. That's my prayer. And I think it will happen. There's some good news. This past year was the lowest number of abortions since 1973. Lowest number. That's a good thing. I was at the ERLC on Tuesday uh, in downtown Nashville. And uh, there was a congressional leader who was there who is going to be in charge, be the primary per person on the fiduciary committee putting together the budget for the U.S. And we laid hands on her as she requested for praying for the removal from the budget of Planned Parenthood. So we hope that'll happen. That's a, that, that's a small number. 57, about eight of those have been done by Planned Parenthood. So there's still lots to be done. 
Those are some steps, but I do think it will happen. And I think it will happen as we wake up to the two-facedness, right? The illogical, schizophrenic way that we live in relation to abortion. As we, as we start just understanding these things and, and just trying to be logical, like we're looking at the hu- sanctity of human life, but then just from a logical standpoint, if people want to discount that, which is Christians, we fight for that. But over here, as we just think and use our brains and are persuasive with this, if a woman gets in her car and is driving to the abortion clinic to have an abortion and on her way has a car crash and she and the baby die, it's double vehicular homicide. But if she got to the clinic, it's just choice. The, the baby. Same result. Death. How? How can this be? If the, if, if, the, if the definition of living the right to life is being wanted, where's that going to lead? What is that slippery slope? That sounds very much like Nazi Germany. Not wanted. Out. Somebody's like, well, that's a woman's body, though. It's her right to do with it what she wants. Number one, I disagree. There's a life inside. Secondly, even if it is, if we concede that, all right, it's your body. Try making that argument that you can do whatever you want to do with it with the rest of our laws. Go down here to Noansville Road, take your clothes off, and run down the road and see what happens. You're going to jail. It's your body. Right? Well, I want to sell my body. And I want to prostitute my body and, and make money. You're going to jail. You can't just do whatever you want with your body. That, that, that's illogical. That, that doesn't work. You don't live that way in any other domain. You've got the inconsistency of fetal surgery to save a life in the womb at the same time that you could kill a life in the womb. This is illogical. This is inconsistent. Even the little game of when life actually begins. Oh, it's when the baby starts moving. Oh, it's when it takes its first breath. All right. Again, biblically, the concept, the life begins biblically at conception. Psalm 139, Psalm 51, Psalm 58, Job 14 and 15, Luke chapter 1. We could keep going on. And somebody says, well, you've got to have brainwaves. Eight weeks. Eight weeks. Baby has brainwaves at eight weeks. Most people don't even know they're pregnant by eight weeks. Oh, they have to be able to survive on their own with, without any help. Well, anybody on dialysis? Shut it down. Anybody need a feeding tube for a little while? Take it out. Anybody on a respirator? Remove that thing. See, this is illogical. We'll, do, we'll, we'll provide here, but we won't provide here. And so just historically, just to understand, like look back across church history for a minute. These pro-life convictions are part of our spiritual DNA. You go back to the early church. So we got scripture and then we even go to the second century. and We've got writings from the second century and the early church condemned 
clearly the, the practice of abortion. A, a stance that contributed at the time to twice as many women coming to Christ as men. So this is part of our spiritual DNA. But there's another characteristic of the early church that doesn't seem to have the same urgency here in America. But it happens to be inextricably linked to the prevalence of abortion in our communities. And if we're truly going to be pro-life, we must be anti-poverty. Let me give you some examples. In 2014, 49% of women who had an abortion had incomes at the federal poverty level. Do you know what the federal poverty level is for a single woman with no children? It's less than $12,000. Less than $12,000. That's 49% of the people who had uh, uh, abortion. You had another 26%. Their incomes were between twelve dollars and $24,000. So 75% of the people who had abortions had income levels below $24,000. And so the inability to afford a child is one of the main reasons that women choose to have an abortion. This is why organizations like Planned Parenthood are always in low-income areas. There is a fortune to be made by preying off of low-income women. But put yourself in this woman's shoes. A new mother can expect to pay around $2,500 for diapers, formula, all the other stuff that goes with having a baby. This is besides buying furniture. This is besides the medical cost of the birth. And what if that child has special needs? And those costs. And so for the single mom with an unplanned pregnancy living on less than $12,000 per year, raising a child seems like an impossibility. It seems like it's, it's, it's unsurvivable. Like for her. And so a five to ten minute procedure down at the neighborhood clinic for $500 seems like a way out. And this is why pro-life advocacy has to focus on the mother and not just, like the child, yes, that's a given, but not just the unborn child. Also on the mom. She simply sees no way out. It's survival to her. Now, abstinence education, absolutely has got to be a part of our work. Teaching God's design for sexuality, that is to be, it's a glorious thing within the bounds of marriage, one man, one woman for life. All right, teaching about that, God's design for sexuality and human flourishing has to absolutely be part of our work, but we cannot afford to be morally selective. We cannot work to end abortion while being ignorant of or unmoved by the social and economic factors that often contribute to it. I mean, scripturally, caring for the poor is an essential practice of our faith. How many times did Jesus care for the poor? How many times did Paul take up a collection for the poor? As a matter of fact, when he's getting commissioned, the Galatians 2, they say only, you know, as you're doing this, only also care for the poor. And Paul's like, that's the exact same, exactly what I want to do. 
And so we've got to have a consistent life ethic. If we're going to speak up for the unborn, we have to speak up for the poor. If we're going to be pro-life, we have to be anti-poverty. It's not who is my neighbor. It's whose neighbor am I going to be? And so it's my prayer that we, as a country, will wake up to our two-faced, almost two personalities, hypocrisy and illogic as it relates to abortion, our schizophrenia as it relates to abortion. As a country, we'll wake up to that. But we have to acknowledge that there's also a schizophrenia in the church. Because even among those who value the unborn, oftentimes we don't possess a consistent life ethic. We'll bemoan the abortion advocate who will depersonalize and dehumanize a baby in the womb as just a fetus or that's just a collection of cells. So they'll take the personhood away, take the humanness of that baby away and speak of it in terms as if it's not a person. So we'll, we'll bemoan that. We'll say, no, 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 no. That is a person made in the image of God. So we'll bemoan that happening. But then often we'll turn around and we'll do the same thing with immigrants or refugees or some other thing. Some other group of people. Oh, those people. Those, those no-count people coming over here, breaking the wall, taking our jobs. We don't want them. They complicate my life. And I have guns under those Habibs. When we do that, do you, do you see that we're doing the same thing? We're, we're doing the same thing the abortion advocates are doing. We're depersonalizing and we're dehumanizing. These are people, real people with real families. Not imaginary, not theoretical, real people Real families. And I'm not saying throw the law out. But I'm saying above and beyond that, these people, all people are made in the image of God and therefore are worthy of dignity and value. Just as much as you or me or an unborn baby is. They're worthy of our value, our respect our love, our care, our aid from the church, from God's people, God's people. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says this. Of God, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then a commandment, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Job chapter 31, verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? All right, as well. And did not one God fashion us both in the womb? And so to live up to the biblical ethic of the sanctity of life, we have to be consistent. 
I mean, clearly we're not to kill babies. We're not to euthanize the elderly or persons of disability. But it goes beyond that. We're, we're, we're to love our neighbor. We're to care for our neighbor. And we're to watch our mouths and our hearts. Turn to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, chapter 20. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And Jesus here, giving commentary on the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, says this. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. All right. And then Jesus, as he does, he always ups it. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so he, he lays out on top of murder, lays out these three things. Anger, insults, and, and calling foolish. And so just very practically... Words or derivatives of words like retard, towelhead, or other words that are used to describe people who practice homosexuality or um, a person of color are never to be on the lips of a Christian. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I could take you to Proverbs and show you another example of this. There's a, something called, have you guys ever heard of catechism? We've used that word around the church time. It's a question and answer way of teaching theology. So there was one written in 1563. It's called the Heidelberg uh, Catechism. It's got, it, well, there's a lot of questions in it, but one of them, as it relates to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, to help those being catechized learn what all that encompasses, answers this way. So the question, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? And the answer, this is question 105 of the catechism, and people would memorize these, says this. So what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? Answer, I am not to belittle, insult, hate, or kill my neighbor. Not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. And so even as we wage war, all right, and a march will go down in D.C. next week. A march for life. So even as we wage war for the unborn, don't, don't get fetal fatigue. Keep waging war. But let us do so with a consistent life ethic that all people, every single human life is valuable because every single human life has been individually created by God. Every person. You will never meet a person who was not Made in God's image. 
And so let us not grow weary. Nationwide change has happened before. In England, you see with the slave trade, William Wilberforce. In America, Abraham Lincoln. And then later, Dr. King. So we can get there. But it's going to take repenting of our apathy. Getting engaged, advocating and fighting. Lovingly fighting. It does no good. In fact, it does harm to ruthlessly attack those you disagree with. It just starts the conversation with a wall. I, I actually, it doesn't even start a con- No conversation happens at that point. Because you just, you're just talking past one another and lobbing verbal grenades across social media or some other spectrum. It does no good. But rather, speaking the truth in love, boldly, like Dr. King, 50 years ago with the civil rights, he was peaceful and he was bold. He preached the truth of God's word that all men are created equal, and he did so without being sucked into a tit-for-tat fight, venom-spewing process. He did so a lot like Jesus, and so should we. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did you, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Sanctity of life is for all people. Let's pray. Father, would you lead us as a church to compassion? May our hearts hurt for what hurts yours. May we be a place that shows compassion first. Before trying to determine or ascertain if someone is worthy of compassion. Because Father, we were not worthy. We are still not worthy, but you show us compassion and you show us grace. And so Father, help us to be known as a safe place. And Father, for the, if the enemy is trying to Keep shame and lead to despair. Anyone in this room who has made, Father, a tragic decision in the past and they live with guilt and shame, Father, would you in Christ help them to know that there is forgiveness, that our guilt is gone, our shame has gone. You have bore the reproach for us. We don't need to reshackle ourselves to it. And Father, for those of us in here who feel guilt-ridden and shameful over past actions and how we've treated people long ago or recently, and we've dehumanized and depersonalized and we've treated people as if they weren't made in Your image, would You forgive us and would would You fill us with the sense of Your forgiveness and Free us from shame and guilt and 
Show us, God. And remind us that that is why Jesus came. To forgive us of our sins. And so, Father, where conviction needs to happen in hearts, Spirit, I pray you move and convict. And lead to repentance. And that we would walk in living a life that, that bears fruit in repentance. And Father, I pray that we would always work through the framework of our life by looking through the winds of the gospel. That even when we were enemies, you loved us. Even when we were far off, you loved us. When we were in the ditch, you came to us. You bandaged us up. You neighbored us well. You put us in the saddle. You led us to an end. You healed us. At great cost, Jesus, because you gave your life. So let us worship you. You are a good, good father. And remind us, God, that who we are is not what the world says, but it's really more about whose we are. And for those that are in you, you are our father. And our value and our worth and our identity is found there. In Jesus' name, amen.